In this video, I'm going to explain EIP-1559. I'm going to start with a little review of Ethereum and the world computer concept. Then I'll talk about what the three main computational resources are that underlie Ethereum and how these resources are priced relative to each other. Then I'll give a complete explanation of the Ethereum gas system, including the gas limit, gas price, and gas cost. Then I'll explain how what Ethereum really does is sell gas more than it does sell block space. And I'll describe how before EIP-1559, this gas was sold in a first price auction. And we will look at some of the inefficiencies and problems in that approach. And then we will try to think of some alternative designs. And finally, we'll arrive at the final design and mechanisms present in EIP-1559 itself. So let's start with the foundation, which is an understanding of Ethereum itself. And I think it is best to think about Ethereum as a world computer. I think that analogy is actually really useful. Uh, I think uh, smart contracts is a bad name um, because they're really just programs, right? Like <clears throat> what Ethereum is, is this great decentralized, globally shared computer of sorts, which sort of lives in the cloud, roughly speaking. And on that computer, we can upload code in contracts and then transactions can be sent to that code and they can execute uh, those programs. So they really, contracts really do function just like programs with a few little differences that I'll talk about another time, but I think this is a good way to start. And then we can then think about the EVM as functioning a little bit like the CPU in this big, you know, world computer thing. So we have our CPU here, that's the EVM in red. And this EVM connects to the world state, which is in a sense the core most important thing in the entire Ethereum system. And the world state is kind of like memory or storage. It's like we have this, this processing unit, this CPU, this EVM, and it operates on this world state, this storage, and it makes changes to it. We then have the blockchain itself and we don't really have a good analog in traditional computing to the blockchain because this blockchain in our analogy would be like the history of program execution or something. And most computers don't keep a record of all of their, the history of their execution. So this is a little bit different. And this is maybe why as well that blockchain has become like the name for this entire technology because it's something different, right? The first thing from the previous paradigm that didn't quite fit in the previous paradigm is maybe the thing that stands out the most. So that's what we kind of refer to the whole new paradigm as. But anyway, here I've got a little diagram of that. And just to explain this a little bit, I have a block here. So this is meant to be a whole bunch of blocks. Then I have an individual block here with a header, some transactions, pretty straightforward. In the world state, if you didn't know this already, this entire chunk of data in Ethereum is like five or 600 gigs now. And it consists, it's very simple actually, it consists of just two different things, two different types of data object. And those are the accounts and the contracts. And an account in Ethereum is simply uh, an address. The address uh, points to some data. So we have a balance and a nonce. So these are just two like two numbers really. An Ethereum, an Ethereum account is really just uh, an address that points to these two numbers. We then of course have contracts and they're similar. You have an address for the contract. It has a balance and a nonce. 
And then it also has code and storage, right? So that's where they're a little bit different. That's where the contract uh, becomes more of a program, right? Because it has actual code associated with it. And it can have its own uh, like personal storage where it can write its ERC20 balances or whatever, whatever it wants to do. But that is the Ethereum world computer kind of view. Now this world computer, of course, runs on regular computers. So the way the, the Ethereum you know, network actually exists, like what is it actually made of? Like what's really at bottom going on? You just have a bunch of regular computers, you know, laptops and server, uh, server style computers, et cetera. But it's just a bunch of computers and all these computers are running a complete instance or copy of this Ethereum like world computer thing. So each of these computers has a complete copy of the world state. It runs its own EVM and it has a copy of the blockchain. Now we could talk about this for a long time, the details in that, because not every node has to store a complete copy of the blockchain, but I'm not gonna go into that now. Now in this system, every node in this network, every underlying computer that is participating in generating this holographic world computer, all of these underlying computers, they have to naively process every transaction and they have to store the entire world state. And so if we want to make Ethereum faster, if we want to make this larger world computer system operate faster, process more transactions, etc., the underlying machines are going to have to work faster, right? Because each of them is essentially just like a complete naive little copy of the system. So if we want Ethereum to go, you know, 10x faster, all of the underlying machines are going to have to go 10x faster. I think that's probably pretty obvious, but so we have to set some cutoff. We have to say like, we, I mean, we could just crank the variables up and say, make the system super fast, have a super high gas limit, et cetera. Um, but then you would need a higher end machine to keep up, right? And we want the system to remain accessible so that it's not too expensive to run a node. So it remains decentralized. So what has been done is we've set the target to be a $2,500 laptop. And so this sort of raises the question of okay, like what do we really mean by throughput, right? Like I said, you could crank the gas limit up and maybe that would make it harder for certain machines to keep up. But like, what does that mean? Like, what is the gas limit? What does gas even measure? You know, like what the hell is gas? Um, so I'll talk about that now. So these Ethereum resources that I've mentioned, the EVM, the world state and the blockchain, those map pretty cleanly to underlying computational resources in the regular old computers that underlie the system. So, you know, we have the EVM, the state and the chain. We can think of the EVM as mapping pretty cleanly to the CPUs, to the processing power of those underlying nodes. The world state, that 600 gigabyte chunk of data, that maps to the solid state drive. And it has to be in a fast drive, not like a hard disk, like a spinning disk. It needs to be in an SSD because the, the nodes have to access that and search through it very quickly, that uh, world state. We then have the chain and the chain is a little bit different. It, as I mentioned, like individual nodes don't necessarily have to store the entire chain. They don't have to access it frequently. So they could store this data on a slower disk if they want. Um, they could also store it on an SSD if they have a ton of space. So the chain uh, puts some burden on storage, 
Um, and then also the network, because it's a lot of data, this is a lot of data to continually be sharing across the network. Each time a block is mined, you have to share the data. So it puts a little bit of burden on the network itself. But okay, so these resources in our world computer, they map to real world resources in the underlying computers, the nodes. Great. Now, when we start thinking about how those resources are actually used, like how would you measure resource use? You have to it's a bit of a tricky problem because Ethereum is a Turing complete computing platform, a Turing complete uh, smart contract platform. And what that means is that the, um, the resource use used by an individual transaction can vary a lot. And to give you an example of this, you can think about L2 call data. So if you're familiar with rollups, like for example, an optimistic rollup, an optimistic rollup has to post all of its transaction data to its parent chain. In most cases, that's Ethereum, right? It has to make available this, all of the transaction data, it can compress it somewhat, but for each transaction, there has to be a corresponding little chunk of data so that in the case that there's a fault proof or a fault, uh, you know, an arbitration happens where someone's claiming that there was a fault, um, there has the contract that arbitrates that has to be able to potentially like go back through the transaction history. The EVM is not asked to really like process that those transactions or like do anything. It's just like throw it all on chain. Then if we have to in the future, we can go back and make construct proofs using the, that data, whether there was a fraud committed or not, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is there are certain transactions that are just using a whole bunch of one resource, right? Like an L2 call data, you know, data dump is just using the blockchain essentially. To give you another example, which is another kind of extreme or maybe not that extreme, but another example to contrast this. If you think about a DEX swap, like a Uniswap trade, that would be a transaction which is mostly doing compute. It's mostly using the resources of the EVM, it's not posting a lot of data to the chain, just a little bit, right? Like the amount of data you're submitting when you do a Uniswap trade is actually pretty small, but the EVM has to compute, you know, how does this pool change and this pool change and like blah, 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 right? It has to actually do some computation. Um, so the L2 version, the L2 example is just a huge amount of data. We're just using the blockchain history. The deck swap, we're mostly just using the EVM and we're making changes to the, to the world state too. So because these transactions can do anything in a sense and because they can vary so much, we need to have some way of measuring their transaction use. And the way this is done, of course, is that all transactions, uh, the code when a transaction is calling some function, some contract, when it's executing some code, that is broken down, broken down into a sequence of opcodes. Like what is actually happening inside the EVM, inside the system, is that all of your transactions that are interacting with smart contracts, they're broken down into this long sequence of opcodes and they're very simple little operations. And each of these is priced. So this is where we assign like a certain cost to each of these different operations. And we can, we can also categorize them like I've done here in terms of which resource they're using 
but that is how it works. They're all broken down into these opcodes. The opcodes are individually priced and we arrive at a total uh, gas cost for a certain transaction, which I'll explain more in a second. So you'll notice here, this first little square up here, this is the EVM operations, right? It's pink. This is the world state and this is the uh, blockchain use, the call data. And I've written the gas uh, cost for each of these things. So add, the add operation has a gas cost of three. It's pretty cheap. SHA-3, which is now deprecated, I believe, has 42. Um, S-Store, which is writing to the world state uh, for a new value is 20,000 gas. So it's fairly high. Um, but even reading from the world state, like balance, you're just grabbing the balance for a contract or account, regular account, and that costs you 700 gas. And then we then have for call data, we can see it's 16 gas per byte. This is for non-zero non bytes and four gas for a zero byte. And this is the cost. So you'll notice that these, like, these numbers are not in terms of ETH. They're not, this is not like three GUE. It is not the same thing. This is the gas cost for opcodes is just like a relative pricing. At this point, all that we're saying is that an ad operation is less burdensome than executing SHA-3 in approximately this ratio, 3 to 42. And for, it's the same thing for call data. We want to, or we have to impose some charge on people using the system and growing the blockchain history. Um, you can see it's a lot cheaper per byte than it is to store in the world state. This is for uh, 256 bits, I believe. But it's still, it's a lot cheaper to grow the blockchain history than it is to grow the world state. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because the world state is this object that everyone has to keep track of and continually reach in and out of. Whereas the chain history doesn't need to be accessed nearly as much, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's think about this a little more and just think about what I've got here is a, is a single block. So here is a block. This is the block header. And we can think of each square here, here as just being a certain amount of data. So like this is just a view of a block. Obviously it doesn't have that many transactions. Like each of these sections is a transaction. So in reality we would have more, but that's okay. But these, what I'm trying to show here is the size the area of this thing is just representing the raw data of the transaction. Now, we can take one of the transactions here, this big one, and isolate it. And these two darker purple squares are just meant to represent that for every transaction, there's a certain amount of data, there's a certain amount of like data overhead, because every transaction is going to include a value that's being sent, which might be zero, um, a nonce, the uh, signature data, etc. So there's a little bit of overhead. But then the rest of this data, the bulk of the data is call data. So this is data that is being sent. This transaction is uh, calling a smart contract. And this extra data here is being sent as an argument into a function on a contract. So that's like the function call. This is a bunch of data being sent to a contract. Now, when we start to think about how we need to charge this transaction in terms of the resources it's using, the first thing to think about here is simply how much data is the transaction, right? 
this, all of this data is going to have to live on chain. It's going to have to be stored in the chain history forever. But then the next thing we can think about is how else are they going to be charged for this transaction? Because if, for example, this transaction was one of these L2 call data uh, transactions, they might not, this transaction might not actually require the contract that it's being sent to to really do anything, in which case it might not get charged hardly anything in addition to the call data cost, right? But assuming this, uh, this transaction is doing something else, we can then break down or expand this, this call into its actual final gas uh, you know, resource use, its gas use. So here I'm imagining that the purple, of course, is the blockchain. We already talked about that. So you're being charged for that. But then this transaction is also going to use some world state and it's using some EVM. Okay, so imagine this transaction is using, say, 200,000 gas. The sender of the transaction is going to have to pay um, a certain amount of money, a certain amount of ether per gas. So anyway, what I'm trying to represent here with this, this area or this volume, sorry, is that each unit of computational work, each gas is going to need to be paid for. So the height uh, above like the area is gas, right? Then the height and then this entire volume represents the amount of ether. So I think I mentioned this, different op codes impact different resources, but it's all reduced to a single measure, a single metric, and that is just the gas, the total gas used in a given transaction. Um, if you wanna look further into this, there's, it's worth checking out multi-dimensional EIP 1559, um, where we actually think about charging like separating out these resources a little bit and charging kind of having like a gas limit for each of them that are that's distinct but I'm not going to go into that right now okay so the next important thing here is that blocks have a gas limit which i'm sure you know and this is how the entire ethereum system meters its use this is how we decide we set a limit on how much computational burden we're going to accept per unit of time per minute or whatever and so this is why I say Ethereum sells gas, right? Like a lot of people say that Ethereum sells block space. The bankless guys say this sometime, or they say blockchain sell block space. And like, it's not wrong, um, but it's kind of wrong because, and I'm, I'm sure they know this, but like Ethereum is not selling, like I said, X amount of like bytes per block of transactions. It is selling a certain amount of gas and now that we're on proof of stake and we have deterministic block times, right? Every Ethereum block now takes 12 seconds. It used to be a probabilistic Poisson distribution kind of thing. So they could be all over the place. That's how most cryptocurrencies work, proof of work cryptocurrencies. But Ethereum now is proof of stake and a block comes out every 12 seconds. So essentially we're selling a little bit over a million gas per second. And also, as I mentioned, the price per gas is determined by the market. Right? It's supply and demand, and this makes it quite easy. If we're selling a little over a million gas per second, just constantly, right, in a very regular manner, we have essentially a fixed supply that's released per unit time. And that supply of gas is sold on the open market, so the price varies, right? So in general, what this means, having this gas limit, is that, so take this block from 
that I had here where we took one transaction and kind of examined it and thought about how it breaks down to a certain amount of gas. And then we have to sort of like place a certain amount of ether on top of that total amount of gas, which gives us our final um, gas cost for the entire transaction. It's the same thing essentially, of course, with all the other transactions in a block. We can think about a block here having, you know, there's these uh, six transactions and each, each of these transactions uses a certain amount of data. Then each of these transactions is, ex is expanded into its actual total gas cost, which is going to involve EVM, uh, state access, etc. <clears throat> so then we get a final area for each of these. Now these users, these people that send these transactions, they have to pay for all of the gas that they're imposing on the system. And they have to do that with ETH. So for each little square, they have to put a certain height of, uh, of ether on top of that to pay for it. And so we get these volumes of ether. You can think of them as being like filled with gas, right? You are full of ether. You get these, uh, <laughs> you get these volumes on top of the transactions. And if you put it all back together, you have an, a total volume on the block. And this would represent the total income that the miner gets uh, aside from block rewards, etc. But the total fee revenue before AIP 1559, this is the total fee revenue is the volume of all of these purple pink squares. Okay, now let's talk about how this gas was sold in a little more detail, like what the market mechanisms looked like for it. And then we'll talk about some of the problems that were inherent there. So now we're getting closer to the motivation for EIP 1559. Okay, actually, before I explain that, I should explain this diagram here because I absolutely slaved away on it. So all I'm trying to show here is that we have our block progression over time, right, kind of left to right going down the page here. We have uh, block here, block here, block here. And these are the actual blocks, so to speak. So this is the actual data for the block. We have a block header and the raw data, right? So this, we can think of as the actual, actual chain as being this lower, this like thing here, right? So the actual amount of data in these blocks can vary um, because again, the blocks are not limited by a total amount of data, so to speak. They're limited by a total amount of gas that can be spent. But we have our blockchain going down here and then we can see each of these blocks, these transactions are here expanded into the total gas being spent for each transaction. So this one's got like four transactions. You can kind of see, I hope you can see sort of like, I made this kind of transparent. So underneath the cubes, the volumes of, of ether being paid, the fees, you can see that these uh, transactions are expanded to not just be the data that's in them, but also the, the EVM use and the world state use, etc. So they take up a certain footprint and you can see this limit here, this purple line, that's the gas limit. So this is 15 million on this example. So over time, we have these blocks, they're using 15 million gas and they have their, their uh, fees paid on top of them. And the miners would have you know, grabbed all this gas and taken it for themselves. And that is how the system progressed. And it was pretty simple. Okay, so now I will explain a little more about the fee market. So before EIP 1559, gas was sold in a first price auction. And this is like an economics term for the very, very simple 
system that we're all familiar with. For your transaction, you would set a certain gas price and you wanted to set it high enough. You'd have to kind of estimate and you wanted to set it high enough such that it would be mined. And then the miners either accept it or don't. And they take all of that uh, fee revenue for themselves. Okay, now let's talk about some of the problems that are inherent in this first price auction system. So I'll start first with a simpler problem here, and it's not that much of a problem. This is just the inelastic block size, or the inelastic gas limit, I should say. And all I'm referring to here is this fact that over time, in the previous system, the gas limit was fixed. It was There was a hard limit there. And this is totally fine in the sense that we do want there to be a gas limit. Uh, that's That's not a flaw, that's a feature. But having this like hard limit that can never be even exceeded by a little bit, it's actually like it's a pretty bad UX for the user and it's not actually that strictly necessary. So what I mean is that if, for example, something really important was happening in a certain block, like some NFT mint, it wouldn't actually be a big deal if we let just say one block once in a while do like double the gas limit, for example. It, you know, it would put like a tiny bit of a burden on the underlying nodes, but it's actually what matters here is that on average, the computational burden is kept at a certain level, 15 million, right? But a given block can spike uh, to, could in theory use a lot more resources and it would be okay. Like the system wouldn't be overloaded just in, because of one block, right? And the kind of downside here for the users is that some user might be like, bro, I'll pay like anything to get in this block. I have to get in this block. But because we have this hard gas limit, we're just like, no. Even if you would have been willing to pay like 0.1 ETH or, or one ETH for your transaction. Uh, with a hard gas limit, we just don't let any, we do not let anything uh, above the limit in. Okay, but the more significant problem with this old system is this. And I'll explain this diagram. It was adapted from a blog post from uh, Ansgard, Ansgar Dietrich, I believe. I'll, I'll link below. And I think this is a really good way of thinking about it. So this is trying to capture the fee market inefficiencies, like the inefficiency that is inherent in this uh, first price auction that I've described. So what I'm showing here is this width is the gas uh, limit. So this is say 15 million gas and it's full. It's got a bunch of transactions in here. Each of these little columns is a transaction broken down into multiple parts, which I'll explain. The height is the gas price. So we can see that the block builder, the miner has basically sorted transactions by how much they're paying and just slotted them in in that order. Now, there's three things, there's three sort of sections to each transaction here. And I'll say, so the first one that's easiest to explain is there's a certain amount, um, there's a certain amount of the fee that is being paid to the miner that is actually deserved. So every transaction does impose a little bit of burden on the uh, block builder it takes some work for them to process how it changes stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So they do deserve some compensation for each transaction. But 
most of this, most of this gas being spent here is actually a form of MEV. Now, the way I'm using MEV here is taken again from that uh, blog post, excellent blog post. And it's not referring to like what you might think of normally as MEV, like sandwich attacks and whatever. But it's it's really, the reason we're using MEV here is it's just, it's minor extractable value. It's some value that the miners are sort of extracting and they're not really perhaps justified or they don't really deserve it in a sense. There's two types of MEV here. There's the auction MEV and the base MEV. And so I'll explain this one first. The auction MEV is, it's how much extra the users are paying that they shouldn't be paying in order to get included in the block. Essentially, okay, so think about it like this. This transaction here got included, right? It only paid this much, like this height of gas. Now, these other guys, all of these other transactions, they could have, if, if they had like perfect foresight, they could have paid the same amount as this guy, or maybe just a tiny bit more, and they would have got into the block too. Because these transactions, you know, they're pulled from the, the top of the stack of the mempool. These are the highest paying 15 million gas worth of transactions and they're in the block. So these guys, they didn't know that the actual amount of money to get into the block was gonna be this much. So they all paid like, they had to guess, right? And they ended up paying quite a bit more. Like this guy here is paid, you know, like double what he needed to just because he didn't know and he wanted to be sure that he got in. He was expressing his priority or his desire to be included in the block. Now this price level actually has a name in economics terms. This is the market clearing price. And the reason it's called that is because we have a certain supply of goods. We can think of it that way. that are being sold. This is 15 million gas where every unit of gas is essentially the same as every other. So we have a whole like collection of commodity that's being sold and the market clearing price is the price that needs to be paid to clear the market to sell all of this off so this miner we can think of it this way is is happy to sell this entire supply of gas for this price remember these guys overpaid because they didn't know that they could have been included just paying the market clearing price just paying this much Okay, so for this category of MEV, this dark purple, we have established that these guys are essentially overpaying, although they had no way of knowing they were going to be overpaying, they just had to bid. So this, all of this, this area here is essentially excess, it's MEV, and this is the users overpaying, and this is what we're going to aim to reduce, okay? This can actually be reduced. Now the other kind of MEV, the other category we have here is base MEV. And <clears throat> so this is a little bit different. It's still MEV, like the miners again don't deserve that. They don't deserve anything more than this yellow uh, small section here. But this pink MEV, this cannot actually be reduced because remember, this is a free market. The market is going to bid up the thing that's being sold, which is the gas. And, you know, this level, the market clearing price, this was determined by the market. Like people are all throwing in their transactions. They're bidding up uh, the gas price, essentially. And there's no way to like 
there's no way to save users from having to spend that money because they have to be able to express their desire to get included. So that's going to bid up the gas price, right? And like, there's no way to kind of cancel this. We can hope to flatten this curve a little bit because again, like these guys didn't really need to pay this much. This guy way overpaid. He could have paid like a little bit, a little sliver here. So we can reduce this, but we can't actually lower this level. This market clearing price is just set by supply and demand and we can't actually change it. What we can do though, is we can redirect it because the miner doesn't deserve this money. Um, we still have to collect it, but it doesn't have to go to the miner. We can collect it and redirect it. And of course we burn it, right? Okay, one more thing I'll talk about here before we move on is in economics terms, this first price auction, first of all, it's well known to be inefficient and have all these problems. People have studied this, you know, decades and decades ago, I think. Um, there's lots of papers written on this stuff, like it's very well understood. And in economics terms, this first price auction system has what's called perfect price discrimination. And I'll explain what that means. Price discrimination is where you're selling the same good for different prices, right? It's like you're selling potatoes or whatever, or coffee beans, and you're going to discriminate on your buyers. So you know that this guy has a lot of money and he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to charge him, you know, X amount for the, the coffee beans. This person over here, they literally can't afford more than a certain price. So I'm going to charge them like as little as I can and still make money because if I increase too much, they won't even buy from me. And on net, I'll be worse off. So I'm going to discriminate across the set of users and in order to try and maximize my income. Uh, an example of this actually is in a lot of software products like Apple does this, for example, they will essentially what the tiers of iPhone are is a form. It's kind of like, it's not quite price discrimination because you're, you're buying different, different SKUs like a better iPhone. But a lot of what they're trying to do there is just capture the people who have more money to spend. Like someone who has tons of money, they go to buy an iPhone and they're just like, yeah, I'll get the best one, like whatever, it's $2,000 or something. But there's a lot of people, a lot of customers who they're only gonna buy the iPhone, like they're gonna buy the cheapest one, the only, only the one they can afford, and they're not gonna buy it if it's, too, if it's priced too high. So Apple, in order to maximize its, its, in, its revenue, its profit, it's going to create these tiers where, uh, yeah, you're getting more storage and whatever, but like the difference, most people don't really notice. It's more of a way to like capture the people who don't have a lot of money and capture the people who do have a lot of money and who will pay a lot to maximize a profit. So the first price auction has price discrimination, of course, and it's perfect price discrimination. And what that means is that we're not only selling things at different prices to different users, right? different gas price to different users. It's perfect in the sense that all of these users were blind going into this. Like they just had to place a bid. And if you're a user, what is the bid you, you place? If you're concerned with your transaction being processed, you essentially pay the highest fee that you're comfortable with. So it's like they're extracting from you the highest amount you're willing to pay and it's doing this perfectly. So every user, if I'm selling gas, every user is paying the highest price per gas that they're willing to pay, which is perfect if you're 
uh, a seller of gas. Okay, so just to reiterate here, what we're trying to do, we have two types of MEV. We have this MEV and we have this base MEV. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to flatten this curve to reduce the auction MEV as much as we can. And then we're going to redirect the base MEV because it can't be removed. So we're gonna burn that, that's a spoiler. And so we need to think about perhaps alternatives to the first price auction that will accomplish this. Um, here I'm just restating, reduce auction MEV, flatten that curve, burn or redirect somehow the base MEV. Oh, and we also want to perhaps include the inclusion times and fee predictability. And also, this is important, all of these changes have to be made uh, in a sensible way. Like we wanna make minimal big changes to the protocol because this Ethereum protocol is in production, right? It's We can't be imposing or we don't want to be imposing like a radical change that could potentially introduce unknown problems, et cetera. So what we want is the maximum improvement to the protocol, to the user experience, et cetera, with the minimum change. So if we can change something, we don't necessarily need a perfect solution to all of these things. We want maximum improvement with minimal kind of cost or minimal change. So a uniform price auction is a well-known thing in economics. It's been studied lots. And it is in a sense like the perfect alternative to a first price auction because it achieves perfect flattening of that auction MEV that we're calling it. So if you imagine an example like this one here, this is a block where the width is the gas limit again, and we have a bunch of transactions in here. So in a uniform price auction, these bids would be submitted. So every user as usual would submit their transaction with their like maximum that they're willing to pay. But then the what they actually paid would be reduced to only that which the the lowest, the least paying transaction paid. So it would effectively reduce all of these down to the market clearing price, which is kind of perfect, right? We go from here, like all the users submit their bids like this, then we apply this system and it vanishes all these. And then every user pays just this much, which would be a huge savings, right? But there are some problems with this approach. So first of all, this can be gamed. Like as a block builder, you can imagine you have a situation like this, where there's this guy here, so you know that your actual income is gonna be reduced down to that level, the market clearing price. And if in this situation, as a miner, you could simply inject your own transaction in there, right? Replace this guy with this one, and you could bring up the level to here for everybody, right? So you would make a lot more money and because the this transaction, like you're just paying the fee to yourself, right? Because this income would go to you anyway. So it would be like a cost-free way to uh, jack up this level. Um, another problem with this approach is there's also like a flawed incentive to include transactions based on fee. You get this a bit of this perverse situation where imagine you have this situation here. So these three uh, like cheapest transactions all pay in the same amount. 
suppose you had this situation. Now you, right before the block is due to be submitted, you see another transaction that's actually paying more. So this one, like by any reasonable, you know, judgment, it should be included in the block. It's paying more. It, if the system is functioning well, it should include transactions that are paying more uh, ahead of those that are paying less. But in this situation, if you threw this transaction in here, well, they're all gonna be reduced to this level anyway, because the lowest transaction is still this one, or actually this one gets bumped out, but it's this one, which is paying the same. So there's no incentive at all to include this guy because he's gonna get sliced down, it's not gonna make any difference to your profit and so on. <clears throat> so here are two problems right away with this approach. Now, burning some of the fee, which we'll discuss, does solve problem one, or at least it helps with problem one, right? Because if you're thinking about including your own transaction purely to bump up this market clearing price, well, if part of that is going to be burned, then there's an actual cost to you. But burning the fees actually still doesn't solve this problem. But <clears throat> so for the approach that we're going to take, we want to find the market clearing price level. And then if we can do that, we can separate these MEVs, right? Because like I showed in this original diagram, we have like two distinct cases here. These are different sorts of MEV. One can be redirected or burned. The other can potentially be reduced, but they have a, they're there for different reasons. So if we can find that market clearing price, which separates them, then we can do potentially treat them differently. We can deal with them separately. Now, one of the ideas you might think of is, well, once the block is complete and mined, we can certainly see the market clearing price then. It's just the lowest one, whatever the lowest gas price that was included was. So maybe we should, in each block, look back to the previous block, see the market clearing price, and refund those accounts accordingly to how much they paid, overpaid, to get included, right? Now, I think there's probably other reasons, like, this is not done. There might be any problem, other problems with this. But the first thing I thought of is that this is very complex, right? If you're doing this, then in every block, you would have to make uh, a whole bunch of refunds. If there were 200 transactions done in the previous block, then in this block, we have to do 200 refunds or 199 refunds. So each miner then has to like go back into the world state, update a whole bunch of these balances, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's a lot of overhead. It's a lot of complexity. And of course there's a better solution. So I'll, our alternative here is a little bit of a hybrid. It's kind of like a first price auction, you know, that inefficient original type of auction, but in a limited way. And I'll explain what I mean. So it's like a first price auction and a burn combined. And the way to construct this is we need an in-protocol uh, market clearing price oracle, which is just a way to say we need some way to know what that level is, that market clearing price level, uh, kind of like automatically or ahead of time somehow. And if we can find that level, we simply burn everything below it. All of the MEV here that's below that level, we just burn it. That's really easy to do. And then we have a first price auction for what is above the market clearing price level, which I'll explain more soon. Okay, so the way this works is that the protocol 
computes a base fee for each block and it knows this in a sense ahead of time and the base fee is the estimated market clearing price for that future block think about it that way the base fee is like an estimate like a projection where we're going to guess that for this next block the base fee the market clearing price is going to be like 80 guay right so just assume you know we have some way of doing that then every transaction will have to pay at least the base fee. Of course, they're going to have to pay that market clearing price. Um, everyone's going to have to pay at least that to get in. And this is actually a bit of a significant protocol change in that previously before EIP 1559, like transactions didn't actually have to pay a fee. Now they would, of course, in most cases, they would have to pay a fee to get included, but there was no nothing in the protocol that was enforcing that you pay an actual fee. The miner, if they wanted to, could include transactions that didn't pay any fee, or they could include transactions that paid like a tiny fee. And this was one of the original cases of MEV, right? Or that, or a kind of like a dark pool system where the miners would have personal relationships with certain entities and they would include their transactions kind of on demand and they would get paid in a back channel. So the transaction might be included with no fee, but in reality, this entity has paid the miner, you know, uh, a certain fee and then some like tip, some like uh, bribe to get them included because something important is happening in this block, etc. But now the situation is that the protocol actually enforces every transaction pay this certain base fee. Now here's like the main important thing in this entire EIP-1559 system is that in order to estimate this market clearing price, in order to set our base fee, we do this using this interesting uh, kind of uh, dynamic system here. So what we do is we double the gas limit. I'll explain all of this more in a minute, but think about it like this. We we double the gas limit and then we use the gas used in a certain block to be a, kind of an indicator of whether we should adjust our base fee up or down. And so I think the best way to describe this is with a diagram, of course. So I've got a similar diagram here to the one above where we have, uh, we have the blocks going along the bottom here. And this is just showing again the amount of data in a block. We have a block header we have these blocks going uh, through time. And here, unlike the previous diagram, we have a the gas limit or the gas target, sorry, which is where the gas limit used to be. Now that's just a target. It's still 15 million, but it's a target now. I forgot to label it. And now we have a hard limit of 30 million. So we've doubled that. What we've done in EIP 1559, you probably know this, but there's a base fee and there's a tip. So what I'm showing here is how the base fee is changing over time. Remember the base fee is being determined by the protocol. It's being calculated entirely within the protocol in a deterministic way. It's simply looking at how full was the previous block. If it's gone over the limit, that means that in a sense, the, the base fee was too low because we always wanna be hitting just on that limit, right? Over time, we want the average gas used to be right on 15 million. Now, so we've made the blocks flexible. A given block can include 
more than 15 million gas. But on average, over time, we want to keep that limit or that target the same. So the protocol has set some base fee, which is this green uh, gas level. All of these transactions had to pay that base fee. They had to pay at least that level. And we can look. So for this transaction, we look back and we say, we know that this block was oversubscribed. We set the base fee at a certain height. Um, we attempted to guess the market clearing price, but it was oversubscribed. So we're going to read from that, that the base fee was not high enough, that the market clearing price should have been a little bit higher because we really wanted to hit that 15 million, right? So here you can see, if you can see that, the base fee has been increased. This green area is now higher. It has a higher height. We're ignoring the, the tips right now, the purple. So this block, uh, there was some extra demand here. This block responded by increasing its base fee to try and like quell that demand. But for whatever reason, there was huge demand here as well. So this one went way over its target. It went as high as it can over its target to 30 million. So we're going to jack up the base fee uh, proportionally. We're going to jack it up quite high. So now it's like uh, this base fee is getting quite large. And so this block had quite a bit less demand. People didn't really want to pay that, but it still was a little bit over the target. So the next block, it increased as well. Uh, this green area is a little bit higher than this one, just a little bit because we only went a little bit over the target. But it increased its base fee as well. Now, this one finally was undersubscribed. People were finally deterred by the high fee. And so it's uh, quite a bit under the 15 million target. So then it goes back down. The base fee kind of settles back down because we're, you know, we've dealt with this big demand and now we're going to let the system cool off, so to speak. So it kind of has to go, or we want the system to balance these periods of over demand of going over the target with periods where we're under the target because of course that's the only way it's going to average out to 15 million gas and so this is this is how the system sort of dynamically adjusts the base fee to uh sort of modulate or regulate the the amount of gas used the demand and it simply follows this sort of rule, this mechanism. Now I'll explain a little bit more about the, uh, the tip and what it means to have the base fee and the tip, which is also called the priority fee. So one of the reasons to have this tip, which I'll explain a bit more in a minute, is that we do wanna make sure the miners get compensated something for including these transactions. And if the entire base fee, if the entire base fee is being burned, then there has to be some little extra that's being included for the miners because it does, like I said here, it takes some effort, some computational work to even bother including that, including the transaction. So <clears throat> part of the function for the tip is just to include some incentive. The other motivation for having the tip is that think about the situation where a block is full like this one here, we still want there to be some way, like we can't fit any more transactions in, but we still want there to be some way for users to have 
uh, expressed their desire to get into the block. You know, like if you if you really absolutely want to get into a block, you'll include in your transaction enough to pay the base fee that's coming up. But also you might include a very large tip. So in these situations where a block is full, we essentially revert back to a first price auction. You know, the miner is just going to include the transactions that are paying the highest uh, tip. I mean, they have they have no choice but to include only transactions which are paying an adequate base fee, right? So they might not have that many to pick from, but in the case of a block that's full, obviously they had enough to pick from to fill the block. And from there, they're going to uh, prioritize based on the tip. Now, the actual dynamics of the base fee and tip are a little bit complicated, but this is actually a really smart nuance that the ETH developers came up with. So the way you actually, the way your fee is actually calculated is with this little equation. So you pay the minimum of these two things, the minimum of the base fee plus the max tip and a max fee. So on your transaction, what you actually specify is max tip and max fee. You don't on your transaction specify base fee because we know what the base fee is. You don't need every transaction to uh, include that data like 100 transactions all saying that the base fee is 50 guay because the block knows that it's 50 guay. We don't really need that information there. What you include is simply the maximum tip you're willing to pay and the maximum total fee. And then the, what you actually pay is the minimum of these two. And the reason for setting this up in this way is that it gets you a sort of optimal situation. And I have some examples here. So in... So suppose this was your, this is your, your fee, like the width represents your gas, right? And the total height represents the maximum fee. So for your transaction, you've set the max fee, which sets the, the maximum height. And you've set your max tip, which is set in the maximum height for this purple area. Now, because we're using this equation, it's going to take the minimum of these two things. So your max fee is a certain height but the base fee plus your max tip is actually lower in this situation because I have this dotted line representing the base fee. Uh, what you actually pay is base fee plus max tip, base fee plus your purple thing. And this happens to be lower than your actual uh, max fee. So you pay less. So in this situation, you've saved money, which is great. Now, <clears throat> there's another situation where this is helpful. Suppose you have this situation, you have your max fee set to a certain height, you have your max tip to this uh, certain amount here. The base fee is at this level, and obviously um, the miner, so in this situation, the miner has a choice. They can still include your transaction, even though like it sort of looks like you were expecting, so to speak, the base fee to be lower. That doesn't really matter though. As long as there's enough gas, enough uh, guay, enough price per gas being paid here to uh, to cover the base fee, the miner can include you. So now this, this complicated minimum uh, formula 
has in this situation it it manages to get you included so here's two improvements that would not exist if you actually just set the base fee and the tip as just two separate numbers uh, and you just paid that then you would have a you wouldn't have these optimizations so now let's try to get a bit of an intuition about how this this system eip 1559 how it actually solve some of these problems like how does it really help us reduce this auction mev which was kind of the goal here right reduce auction mev burn or to redirect the base mev that's easy um and then achieve you know better inclusion time etc so how has this system achieved that okay so this is our situation now in contrast to this situation here. Maybe I'll just move up a little bit. So we've relabeled things a little bit. Instead of base MEV, it's now become protocol extractable value, so to speak. So this is no longer going to the miner. It's now going to be burned or in an alternative future, the protocol could use it for whatever it wants. Maybe it redirects it to some sort of fund. We then have a this is sort of something we're just imagining or adding on here, but we can think of part of the tip as covering the actual uh, transaction cost. The actual amount of money, that amount of ETH, that the miner deserves for having processed the transaction. So that's now included in the tip. And then we have the actual auction MEV, now you'll notice it's still there, right? Because the users are still including uh, some tip and users who really want to prioritize their transaction or ensure that it gets in, even in a period of congestion, uh, they might include a, a larger tip. So you, you may still have the situation where you have this a bit of a slope, right? You have some people in here who in a sense overpaid, right? Like this user, they set their tip kind of high, maybe anticipating that this block would be full or that it might be full. And then they would need to have had that tip perhaps to get included. This is the other really important thing that uh, kind of took a little while to click for me is that most of these transactions, like most blocks are not full, right? In this new system, if you look through the blocks, they are about, 95 to 99% of the blocks are not full, right? They still have room. This is a little uh, diagram here skipping ahead, but <clears throat> you can see that most of these are not full. And so what that means is that essentially anybody could have gotten into that block. Like for this block here, the miner would have included any transactions that were available that at least paid the base fee and then some amount of tip. And like to get a little more intuition about this, because this was actually the hardest thing for me to figure out is like, why is this curve reduced? Like, what is the real intuition for why having this, you know, flexible block limit um, and having this protocol determined uh, base fee, which is like the market clearing price? Like, I get all that, but how does that really translate to a reduced uh, auction MEV curve? And I think this is the best thing, this was the best way of thinking about it that I thought of, is think about it like this. The Most of the blocks, like I said, are not full, 
So there's essentially no auction happening, right? They all are just paying almost like an entry fee, like cover at the club, right? They're paying a certain amount to get included in the block. And essentially if they just pay that amount and then like a one way tip or whatever, they'll get in. So most of these blocks really don't have any uh, auction to them at all. There's no competition, right? But of course, in the situation where a block becomes full or maybe multiple blocks become full, we then have the situation where we kind of revert back to a first price auction. We then have this you know, competition where the users are having to guess and anticipate and set their tip super high so that they can be sure that, it, that they get included. Because in that full block scenario, there's tons of users, there's tons of transactions that are paying base fee plus one guay. You forget about all those. You want the base fee plus like 20 guay because it's huge demand, right? But because uh, like one to 5% of blocks ever actually have these uh, situations where we have like a real auction, a real competition, on average, um, this flattens that curve a great deal. And so just to summarize a little bit, the situation has changed from this to this we've gone from the first price auction with a fixed gas limit to this doubled gas limit 15 million gas target and as a result of the stuff i've already talked about we flatten this curve we save the users we save the uh users a lot of money in terms of what they're paying and as i mentioned earlier we can't actually save them anything more we can't uh lower the market clearing price because that's determined by supply and demand but we can redirect all of that so instead of it going to the miners who absolutely don't need it it will go to nowhere it will be burned and of course the other component of this is that the gas the fixed gas limit is now very or it's now uh doubled and we have this target so the block the blocks end up looking a little bit like this and this is a better user experience because if you are a user who really wants to get included in a given block, you probably can be included. You know, here something important was happening and we managed to process double the amount of gas of transactions that we otherwise uh, would have. In the previous paradigm, we would have set that hard limit. A bunch of users would have been sad and now they are happier in theory. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about control theory and we're going to zoom in a little bit further and think about how like how is this gas or this base fee actually determined like how is that calculated and how does it make sense and why is it the way it is so when we're thinking about these systems it is useful to understand a little bit about what control theory is and the example I alluded to earlier was that of a thermostat. So this is a sort of canonical example from control theory, where of course the thermostat is reading the ambient temperature in the room, and it knows what your target temperature is, and it has control over, for example, the furnace. So what it will do is track the temperature here, and when the temperature is below, the target, this line, it will turn the furnace on. And it will wait until that temperature uh, hits some certain level and exceeds the goal. 
and then it'll turn it off and back on and off and back on. But in this system, in Ethereum, with this base fee thing that's going on, we have a situation that's sort of similar to a thermostat in a sense. We want the system to uh, have an average gas um, used, like an average amount of gas used per block of 15 million. But we have the 30 million limit, so it can go up and down. And the thing which this uh, algorithm is going to control is the base fee. So it's going to adjust that base fee so that we hit that, that even uh, 15 million average target. So what I've got here is two equations, uh, this one and this one. And it took me some time to track down which equations are actually used because both of these are referenced in a lot of the documentation. And I found out that it's actually this one that's used. And this one here is sort of like an ideal situation. And I'll explain that more in a minute. But Okay, so the way to think about this equation is this way. We have this base fee, which is going to be calculated for the given block, say the current block. And we're gonna base that on the previous base fee. And we want to either adjust the base fee up or down. So we wanna take the previous value and multiply it by say like a half, maybe, if our previous base fee was found to be too high, if the block was undersubscribed, or we might want to multiply it by a number greater than one, i.e. scale it up, if the previous block was uh, oversubscribed. So the way to, I think, actually make sense of why this equation is the way it is, is to take that desire uh, multiplying by this range, 0.5 on one end, 1.5 on the other end, just as example numbers, and kind of work back into this equation to see why uh, it's set up the way it is. So given this range, we can remove the one, subtract one from both sides, and you get uh, a new range. You've shifted the range, zero, negative 0.5 to 0 0.5. Now it's sort of more symmetric over zero, cool. And what's left in the equation is gas used minus target, target times K. So the gas used, of course, is the actual amount of gas used in the previous block, some number between zero and 30 million. The target is 15 million, uh, so we have the same, we have the target here too. And then K is a sensitivity variable, which will make more sense in a second. But for now, just assume, assume K is two. We can then substitute some numbers in here. We have our range, zero to 30, 30 million, right? That's gas used, substitute a range, minus the target, 15 million. The target is on the bottom two times, so 15 million here, times two, so that becomes 30 million. So this, of course, this evaluates to this range, which is our negative 0.5 to 0.5. And of course, if we, if we had the one back in there, we get back to this. And so we can see that what this equation being set up the way it is, what we get is this, uh, this multiplication either up or down. And the K value here will determine what the denominator is. And if this number is, if K is increased, for example, if K is four, we get a different range. We get 0.75 to 1.25. So this would be a slower or a more mild uh, modification to the uh, base fee.
right? Because on the high end, we're, we're increasing it by 25%. On the low end, we're decreasing it by 25%. And you can see k equals eight. This is actually the value that's used for k is eight. So this is kind of the uh, Ethereum blocks will adjust on these extreme ends. Like the, f the fastest it will shrink is it'll be multiplied by that number. Right, and the fastest uh, Ethereum uh, base fee will grow will be an increase of 12.5% uh, essentially. But that is how the equation works. That is the, why it's set up the way it is. And so one of the really interesting things about this equation is it's not symmetric in a sense. And what I mean, you can see this very clearly actually if you look here. So just take some examples. And just notice that if you take the number five and multiply it by 0 0.5, you get two and a half. Now, if you take that, so there you've taken, think of five as being like a base fee, a previous base fee. And the block was say empty. So we want to reduce it. So we multiply by, by 0.5. Now we get, we go from five to 2.5. Now we have a situation where the block is full. So we're going to multiply by uh, the maximum number in our range, if we're working with uh, this range, for example. So we take our 2.5 and multiply it by one and a half, but it only gets to 3.75. It doesn't get back to five, right? We started with five, had maximum reduction to 2.5. Now from 2.5, we have maximum increase, but we only get back to 3.75. It would be kind of nice if we went from you know, if we start at five uh, and we do a maximum reduction and then maximum increase, we should kind of get back to five, right? That would kind of make more sense. And another example of this is of course in crypto investing. If you think about, you know, you, you bought ETH at 2,500, it goes down 50% to 1250. Now, if it goes up 50%, you're not back to where you started, right? You need it to go up a hundred percent. So this is just another example of this asymmetry that exists in multiplication. And this is just another, almost like a proof showing how given some uh, starting base fee and then doing a maximum uh, increase to that and then going through it again and doing a maximum decrease, we don't get back to the same starting point, right? We don't get back to B. So you can check that if you want, I won't go through it. Um, but what I'm showing here is that there's this asymmetry to this distribution or to this uh, kind of adjustment mechanism, but it's actually fine. Like it's not a big deal that in Ethereum, uh, we have this situation where blocks will kind of, base fee will decrease in a sense faster than it increases. It doesn't actually introduce any problems and this equation is quite simple to implement. So at the end of the day, this is actually how it works. Now I'll quickly talk about the ideal form of this equation. Um, actually, maybe I won't even explain it too much, but basically it's the same idea. You take the previous base fee and you just multiply by this expression base E, E being the special number E, and you use this E raised to this power and you basically have the same equation without the one or the same uh, expression without the one. Just now it's being, uh, it's the power that E is raised to 
and then you multiply all of that by the previous base fee. And <clears throat> this is actually, this is actually like the fundamental thing about E, the number, is that it is, it is derived from this kind of asymmetry of growth, and it is the number which will give you a symmetric growth. So if you work all this stuff out, you'll find that this E raised to the power of negative one uh, will give you this number. E raised to the power of one is just E, which will give you this number. These are actually like multiplicative um, mirrors. So if you take a number and you multiply by E, this uh, upper range, you get E times X, right? Now, if you take that same number E times X and you multiply it by the lower range, which is one over E, you of course get X. So you actually get back to your target. So this is the way to achieve beautiful symmetry of this proportional controller sort of base fee adjustment thing. But this wasn't used because as far as I can tell, it's just extra complexity. Using E, E is a, one of these transcendental uh, numbers, one of these irrational numbers, which has no clean and concise expression it's a number that goes on forever. The decimal expansion goes on forever. So it's not straightforward to always in implement these in computers. And that's, uh, I'm assuming why it wasn't used. Okay, so one other little point I want to make is just that I find all of this stuff truly fascinating. And what this is, like this here, what we're talking about is control theory, right? So here we're taking this small example of like a little component of the Ethereum system. But if you zoom out and you think about like the larger set of incentives that Ethereum has, this is what is called um, mechanism design. So I just found this little passage that I got somewhere, I don't remember where, to be very uh, enlightening. That game theory, if you take a game, game theory is the study of the strategies and incentives that are present in that game. So given some rational actors, how will they behave in a certain game which has certain rules and where they're trying to win, right? But the sort of flip side to game theory is mechanism design, where you're studying the inverse. So there what you're studying is, how can I design a game, right? How can I design a game such that I get a desired set of behavior from my players? So you're, you're literally doing the mirror image of game theory. And this, this, I would say, is what is happening here, is in Ethereum, we have this, uh, we have this uh, mechanism design problem, or the, the Ethereum system has many of these components, and we're trying to design the game, right? We're modifying the rules of the game for the players. And that's exactly what the block builders and the users are. These are two sets of actors and players in the system. And we want to tweak the rules of the game such that the users are, are having value maximized, right? Like they're able to get their stuff submitted in a predictable way. The gas fee is predictable. It's better UX. And we also want to satisfy the block builders, but in a different way, because they're not actually the customers of the system, so to speak. 
Like the product that Ethereum offers is this world computer that is meant for users. The miners who are now the block uh, builders and uh, the validators, we don't actually serve them. Like they're not the priority, but we do need to make sure they're aligned, they're incentive aligned to provide the infrastructure to the system. So this whole problem and the whole task of Ethereum and all these uh, protocol components uh, is this mechanism design thing where we are trying to make a functional world computer. Okay, so the last thing I'll talk about is just this interesting side effect almost of this entire thing, which is the burning of ETH. And I'll probably talk about this in another video because it's a very interesting new phenomena, but because the ETH is being burned, some of the ETH is being burned, we have this crazy result, which is that on net, ETH issuance has become negative. So the validators are receiving this constant income, and then the users are paying a certain amount of ETH for their transactions, and most of that's being burned, or a portion of that's being burned. So we have the supply growth in terms of the validators receiving that, that attestation income and block proposing income. And then on the other side of that ledger, we have the users who are submitting transactions with ETH and a lot of that ETH is being burned. So that's pulling ETH, destroying ETH, right? And the net result of this so far has been that the actual supply is decreasing since the merge, since the uh, cost to run the system, so to speak, has declined. The actual issuance is negative now, which is amazing. And of course, another way to think about this is that we can think of the protocol as having expenses, right? We have to pay for all of these infrastructure providers to run their computers and process transactions. And we need to incentivize uh, stakers to lock up capital. So there's a bit of like capital uh, opportunity cost there. So the protocol has expenses in order for it to run. And generally every protocol covers this with issuance. It just prints new tokens out of nowhere, right? What's a little bit different now is that we have revenue, but this is a whole rabbit hole that I'll talk about in the future. Um, that's pretty much it. I'll just zoom out a bit and let you see this whole flow of this diagram. So I guess one more side note is this diagram uh, took me a long time to produce. In the future, I'm gonna do smaller diagrams because I spent most of the time making this diagram and uh, it's probably not worth that much time. But I'll also say that I'm going to potentially try and sell this as an NFT. So if you'd like to support my channel, uh, consider buying this as an NFT. Okay, thanks for watching. That was probably a long video. Uh, like I said, if you want to support this channel and buy one of my diagram NFTs, that would be sweet. Um, the next video will probably be on Ethereum smart contracts. I have a way that I want to visualize what it would look like inside the EVM or inside the world computer from a smart contract point of view. So uh, look out for that. And uh, yeah, thanks for watching. Peace.